0: All right. I am joined today by Bob Elliott, Chief Investment Officer of Unlimited Funds, and Jeff Snyder of Eurodollar University. Gentlemen, great to have you both here. We are recording on the day of the uh, release of the Consumer Price Index, a key measure uh, of inflation, which is driving all sorts of things in the market. Um, Just to read out the data, headline, uh, which means including food and energy, month over month, a a decline of ten basis points or zero point one percent, an increase of six point five percent year over year. Uh, core inflation five point seven percent year over year, and uh, you know a big feature was a de- decline in gas prices. That's why headline was uh you know officially a negative. So um yeah, gentlemen, I, I want to hear what what you think. I know you have different perspectives. Uh, uh, Bob, how about we start with you?
1: Well, I think we're we're in a point here where um, we're. We, the, the inflation dynamic in the market has shifted from being quite elevated, uh, driven by a combination of, um, durable and non-durable goods prices rising, part of that is supply shocks. Part of that is post war implications, you know, around commodities and, and energy and the, and the flow through of those to prices. And a lot of that stuff, as we know on a backward looking basis has mostly been resolved. And so what we're getting right now is a pretty substantial uh, and largely expected disinflationary impulse from, um, from those various prices, whether it's used autos or whether it's the commodity stack, gas prices, things like that. And so, you know, I think that's, that's the basic dynamic, the outcome of which is kind of you know, we don't know exactly when the maximum disinflationary impulse will be from the resolution of those issues or the slowing of those issues. But my guess is we're kind of close. You know, things like energy bottomed December in early December and now are rebounding. Things like uh, things like uh, used autos are basically declining about as fast as you might expect, and actually there's some signs that it might be stabilizing. And so my guess is we're seeing sort of the maximum impact of that disinflationary impulse. Um, And the real question will become, we'll turn our attention to what's going on with like real, like actual services, inflation. um, What is the more structural inflationary pressures in the market? The CPI report basically gives us no indication of any kind about about that question, but that's really the question at hand. Where does labor, you know, where do wages settle from, you know, coming off of peaks? Where do those core goods prices settle from having, you know, resolved the supply chain issues? Where do commodity prices settle? Those are all the sort of, you know, core questions that you know, the CPI report basically is just telling us what largely what we already knew.
0: Jeff? Yeah, I'm going to agree with
2: Bob there. And I think, you know, we were laughing about this before we went on the, on the air here that whatever you thought yesterday, you think today, because there's really nothing in the CPI report that changed anyone's mind about anything. As anybody can see, look, uh, ever since the middle part of last year, consumer price pressures have diminished. That is, there's no argument about that. And the December CPI essentially confirmed what everybody has suspected all along, which is something changed. Now, what does that actually mean? We're not going to get any answers from December CPI, or probably any CPI. We have to go to other stuff to look at maybe what's happening here. So, you know, under the head, the under the hood, the headline stuff. I mean, the numbers all make sense given what we said before. You know, consumer prices they accelerated in the first half of, the, of last year. Something changed, and over the, the second half of the year, they've softened a bit. But where do we go from here? And what do we look at that tells us where we can go from here because, you know, energy prices, um, that was the big one that drove consumer, drove the CPI, drove everything, drove everybody mad uh, the first part of last year. Could they go lower? Well, you look at some of the markets, the WTI curve, it's rebounded a little bit from the lows, but it's still in contango despite tight supplies, which suggests maybe there's more downside to go there. The inventory cycle, which was a huge driver of consumer price pressures, especially in goods, as Bob pointed out, durable goods in particular, Uh, corporate anecdotes, data we see, uh, inventory data suggests that there's, there's lower prices still ahead. So if you're looking at the CPI report and expecting it to tell you something significant, I think you're going to be thoroughly disappointed with it because there was nothing in it that was a surprise to anybody.
0: Right. So a lot of distractions that are not generally indicative of, of anything, like the fact that eggs went up 11% from November to <laughs> December, you know, it doesn't doesn't really tell us about the macroeconomic uh, conditions. Bob, one thing I noticed is that in early last year CPI reports, there was often a culprit. Oh, used cars, uh, used cars airline fares are up. Uh, energy was up at the beginning of this year. But I'm noticing now there's no big... Uh, pocket of inflation. It's sort of ambient. And, um, you know, uh, core inflation is still budging up, you know, about 3% annualized or like 3.6% annualized. And I'm wondering, yeah, I mean, do you think inflation is getting embedded in the system? Because something that can begin as a um, a, a, a supply side shock, it can get embedded in the system, right?
1: Yeah. And and one of the things I I look at, and I I, uh, I posted Twitter uh, this morning, was I kind of take a stab at trying to sort of strip out the 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 goods-y or the or the commodity price uh, affected sectors of the CPI report to kind of get to something that's a little more uh, higher wage driven price indications, and that shows something to be honest, which is like kind of flat at sort of four to five percent and hasn't moved much now it's a little choppy but it's kind of indicative if you go to pce services and you take out the housing component you know you see the same sort of basic dynamic that's going on and so um you know i think that that's the that's the real question you know that's an important question i should say around how this is likely to transpire because you know there will be shifts in goods prices. There will be shifts in commodity prices. They will go up. They will go down. And I think uh, partially uh, from the partially or importantly, the Fed most cares about those. Uh, what is it? Services x housing and in particular labor-oriented services. Less uh, x housing. And so you know whether you think that's a good thing to focus on or not. Like frankly, doesn't really matter when you're thinking about monetary policy. It's what. I was thinking about and so that's where we've got to look and that has shown not you know it, it, it's it's one of these good it's one of these uh these these moments in macroeconomic understanding or research which is like it neither shows an inflationary spiral nor a meaningful decline to which it's kind of bouncing around at kind of flat and slightly elevated which is a pretty like nuanced, you know, non clickbaity answer to your question, but that's kind of what it looks like to me.
0: Right. And I think there are two things that moderate the data set. One is just base effects, which is if we're comparing something to June of 2022, when the price of oil is at $120, it's, you know, if, if it's $119, that's going to be quote deflation. So that's base effects. And then also, Um, Just with this extremely volatile energy prices, you know, uh, if the price of natural gas is like 30 times higher in in Europe, I mean, it's different than than normal, you know, like likely it's going to go down. Right. But so let's sort of uh, stripping that out. uh, Jeff. Yeah. I I want to ask you uh, what to what degree do you think the consumer price increases that we've seen over the past two years uh, have been inflation by uh, your definition And to what degree do you see uh, in the in the monetary system signs of inflation or deflation going going forward?
2: Well, I mean, just to go back to what you just said, Jack, that, uh, you know, the the flip side of that, you know, oil prices were uh, what was 120 some dollars a barrel at their height, but that was the biggest driver of consumer (laughs) prices on the way up. So you can't just flip your wrist and say, oh, now they don't matter because they do. Maybe oil prices are going back not, not to $30 or $40 a barrel, but to maybe $50 or $60 a barrel, which has an effect. Uh, and it also explains what I think happened over the last year, which is nothing more than a supply shock, not genuine inflation. We had simple macroeconomic terms. The demand curve shifted further right than the supply curve was able able to service. Uh, some of that was government intervention, of course, Uh, Government payments directly to people and businesses at a time when maybe they need it. There's an argument to be made there. But either way, the effect was demand recovered from 2020, the lows in 2020, much faster than supply was able to service it. And the problem is that once that temporary situation works itself out, where does that leave us? It leaves us with a lot of people thinking that 2021 was a good economic year when maybe it was just completely artificial. And therefore oil prices that surged up to $125 may not have been reflective of the actual economic situation of that period. And so instead of disinflation or you know data effects in the CPI, what we're seeing in the CPI is simply reversion back toward a more meaningful economic state which might not be all that good, (laughs) which might actually be pretty substantially bad if we look at what the markets are doing. I know Bob raised raised the issue of expectations, which for the Federal Reserve, that's basically all they care about. Um, Whether whether prices go up for one reason or another, they don't actually care. What they think drives inflation other than the unemployment rate is expectations. And when you look around, whether the TIPS market or the University of Michigan or even the Federal Reserve branch in New York's own consumer price survey, expectations have never budged outside of the short run. So whatever has happened in 2021 and 2022, consumers, markets, companies everywhere around the world have said, we don't expect this to last. We expect that once we get through this consumer price period era, transitory, whatever you want to call it that uh, the real economy is going to look very different. And when when we do see what the real economy looks like, it kind of looks like what the data was showing us in November and December.
0: And I think that's probably the biggest area of, of differing views between you two is, uh, Jeff. I don't think you're particularly constructive on the global economy at at all. And, and Bob, and by the way, by, yeah, Bob, you, you muted yourself. Um, I think that you you are quite constructive, and you say, "Hey, uh, we're not in a recession now, and the at least the U.S. economy has proven extremely resilient." And Bob, I know you pay a lot of attention to the labor market, which is. Proven extremely resilient, and uh, I want to hear your thoughts, Bob, on that. And, and then also, could you argue about how the labor market can be indicative of inflation? I mean, if wages are going up eight percent, that's just not an, that's not an oil shock. I mean, that that is pretty embedded in the system, right?
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think one of the things to recognize is we're in a bit of a different cycle than what a what than other economic cycles that we have experienced over the course of the last twenty years, which is we're in a predominantly income-driven cycle. Part of that was supported by fiscal transfers a few years ago related to COVID, but increasingly spending is driven by incomes. And when you are in, rather than spending being driven by incremental credit creation. And so in those sorts of cycles, in a credit cycle, like the 2006-8 cycle, uh, credit moves first, and then you know, spending and unemployment move behind and are lagging indicators in an income-driven cycle. Typically, incomes are closer to incomes and employment are closer to coincident. They're not perfect, but they're in that they're they're much uh, they're a much better uh, timely read of what's going on. And when we look at the labor market, as an example, the timely reads of labor market indications, there has been no deterioration, no meaningful deterioration in labor market. Um, It is not, I'd say, it's not scorching the way it was in 2021 and early 2022, but that was just, I mean, that was, that was a lot of that was post-COVID recovery and post-Omicron recovery and things like that. We're settling in at, you know, secularly low initial claims for the last six months, secularly low continuing claims for the last six months. Um, If anything, the labor market over the last six or eight weeks has gotten better, not worse. Um, And so that whole picture aligns with a dynamic where there continues to be um, tightness in the labor market and typically when you see tightness typically you see elevated wage growth now is that going to happen this time i think the jury is still out exactly where that lands us over the course of the last year we've seen you know wage growth peak at very high levels over the summer actually particularly connected to the oil price shock so can, so I think it, what Jeff's highlighting I think is a really important one, which is we saw a real spike in wages over the summer as lower income quartiles responded to the oil price shock by asking for higher wages almost immediately because they had to pay for the gas in their car and I think the question is now we're sort of off of that cycle prices in aggregate are starting to come you know have come down or the rate of growth has come down. And so then the question becomes where do we settle? Is there enough labor market tightness and, you know, labor power that they can keep wages going at 5 or 6 or 7% or are we going to go back to where we were pre-covid? That that's really a key question. Like the difference between those two paths is the difference between structurally challenging inflation for the Fed and, you know, essentially long transitory inflation let's call it you know not not as transitory as it was originally thought but like you know over a, a longer time over a few year time frame transitory inflation that's the key question in, in my mind you know on the margin i tilt towards thinking that labor uh markets are tight and wages are likely to increase uh at a elevated pace but you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. It's been a long time since labor has had power, right? It's been 30 years since labor has had power, since we've had real wage, you know, real, meaning like meaningful wage growth. And so any confident view on that point is, uh, you know, you can't, you can't be too confident in that view, um, for sure.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, so Jeff, you know, it, um, unemployment rates at 3.5% for people who are staying in their jobs, their wages are going up about 5.5% year um, in a year people who are leaving their jobs their wages are going up 8%. That's uh I mean does do, what do you make of that? I mean if, if people's wages are going up, you know, close to 10% a year, it seems like they can handle 10% price increases and it would sort of sustain.
2: Yeah, if enough people were working, but enough people aren't working and that's the problem. We're still stuck with a participation problem that's been excused for various reasons, you know, yolo or whatever it's been, you know, the great resignation, but the, the fact of the matter is that the participation rate is substantially less than it was a couple of years ago before 2020, which is already substantially less than it was when we started this whole thing in 2007 and 2008. So those people who have a job are enjoying wage increases, which is nothing more than SRIRL, which is, you know, typical of this type of economic uh, economic situation, which I agree with Bob. I think what's happened over the last couple of years is very different from what had happened previous, especially in the, the decades of the 2010s. So you have to factor that in your mind that there's very different uh, sort of circumstances here. But even so, some of the economic behaviors, macro behaviors are going to be the same regardless. And I, you know, I would disagree with Bob about the state of the labor market. You look at the, for example, the household survey, the household survey has been flat since last March. So you had the big spike in oil and then, according to the household survey, companies said, low, let's let's, let's hold up on hiring here. Not only have they hold, held up on hiring, they've also, according to the household survey, they've hired fewer full-time workers. Few, full-time jobs in December were 300,000 less than they were in March. And that doesn't even take into account the one and a half to two million full-time jobs that should have been created over that time period. So we're about 2 million full-time jobs less than where we should have been. And the level of full-time jobs really really never recovered from the 2020 (coughs) recession. So we're even several million more full-time jobs less than that. So those who are working are able to absorb price increases, but those who are not can't. And there are too many in the not category, which drags everything else down, including businesses. Businesses are looking at the revenue opportunities and saying, I need to start controlling my costs here, which is what we see in full-time jobs. And then over the last couple of months, hours worked fell on a seasonally adjusted basis, which suggests that companies are also cutting hours, which is a horrible, horrific, macroeconomic cyclical indication, because now the companies aren't just looking at their, saying we don't need to hire as many workers, we need to actually take proactive steps to control our costs. Bob's right, they aren't at the point where they're laying off people on mass yet. We don't see the huge surge in jobless claims or something like that, but they are taking proactive steps to manage their labor costs because of, it's not economic uncertainty, it's an economic downturn, and where it ultimately ends up depends upon how, se- how severely they react to the, uh, the, the idea that they need to control their costs.
0: Some of that went over my head, um, Bob, but I know I know you uh, you you know what he's talking about, and I you you have a great chart uh, about the household survey. So what what data is, is Jeff talking about? And I, I know you have thoughts about it.
1: Well, I, I think first of all, <clears throat> important whenever you're looking at any macroeconomic let's call it concept here, right? Which is we're looking at the labor market. You want to look at it from a diverse set of perspectives. You want to overly rely on one thing or another. There's all sorts of noise in any macroeconomic stat. And so, you know, Jeff was pointing to the household survey, which is an important lens into what's going on in the economy. There's other things like payrolls, which is a bit, a bit, you know, has been a bit stronger than the household survey over the course of the last six or twelve months. There's initial claims, which you know has its own flavor. It's kind of it's like in the in the firing uh, pipeline, like late in the in the series rather than early in the series. There's things like jolts, challenger layoffs. Uh, and, and and ADP, which is just another triangulation of actual payrolls, and so when you look at all those different things, you know, I I, I triangulate it as something. I see the household survey as one of the weaker spots in terms of where of all of that universe of employment information that's being reported. It's definitely um, it's definitely true that what what uh, what Jeff is saying in terms of the fact that the house. The household survey has lagged the payroll survey and has been weak over the course of the last uh, over the course of the last year. Uh, this year gives you an indication. This is um, the the BLS actually puts out uh, an adjusted series between to basically reconcile the payrolls and uh, and the um, and the uh, household survey because there's some definitional differences. We won't bore people with that. That de- or I won't bore people with that detail right now, um, other than to say, when you look at them, that's those are those two lines, that sort of gold line and that purple line. I think if people can see that on this chart, like there are diver- divergences, those things diverge through time. Neither one is better than the other. You're best off just averaging the two to kind of get a sense. And what that paints a picture of is a moderate growth rate of the labor market. Moderate between modest and moderate, right? And I think the main question is, what is that in the context of? Like, are we an economy that has to add one or two million jobs a year in order to maintain labor market tightness? Um, I, you know, it certainly has not been the case over the course of the last year or two that we've had to do that. And the reason why that is, is there's been a significant number of retirements, more retirements than expected. The Fed's actually had a bunch of good work on that. Um, people have been sick for extended periods of time related to COVID, but like that, you know, so that's kind of the question is how many jobs do we have to actually add? Because if we only have to add, I mean, if we were Japan and our labor market was contracting, like even any positive jobs would be, would be good, would actually tighten the labor market. My guess is that we have to add less jobs than most people expect given the interest in participation and because of that, we're gonna ha- and because of retirements, because of excess retirements, and so we're gonna have a circumstance that unless you get an asset price decline that gets people back into the labor market because their four hundred one k's are destroyed and they unretire, like we're gonna have a situation where you don't actually need that many jobs created to keep tightness in the labor market. But you do need some jobs, right? I mean, it's
2: not like it can be well, zero. And that's well, I the think thing. That's, that's, that's Even the the establishment it's, survey it's, is barely more than it was in February of 2020. It's barely. So there had two, almost three years, there had to have been some level of job growth. And in fact, there has been very little. We can't explain that as just retirements. But let, let's get back to the issue of the household survey. You're right, Bob, over time, if over the long period of time, The two surveys generally agree with each other, but they do diverge in certain periods where it's absolutely crucial to understand that divergence. And one of those periods just so happened to be the year 2007, which perplexed policymakers at the Fed to no end because they said, look at the establishment survey. Ben Bernanke said subprime is contained and the economy looks fine and resilient, the labor market in particular, when you look at the establishment survey. But wait a minute. The household survey looks relatively weak it flattened out and full-time jobs flattened out just like they have not only in 2022 but also in the year 2000 just prior to the dot-com recession too so maybe there's too much statistical manipulation with the establishment survey to pick up too much trend cycle adjustment to pick up changes in the cycle but even look at the establishment survey which was down to what two 260 something for the december number whatever it happened to be it's creeping down below the lower end of what its range used to be. So I think I agree with you, Bob, in that respect that the labor market has shifted, but it's not at all clear, at least in the data that we're seeing thus far, what that actually means. The household survey says this is a recession that's coming. The establishment survey says, well, maybe it's just a downshift in employment to something more stable and normal. So where do we go to split the tie? Well, Look at other, as, you're, as you do, look at a broad range of other data sources. Uh, but again, in most of the labor data, you get the same ambiguity. You mentioned JOLTS. JOLTS job openings look like the economy is still red hot. Like there's so much labor demand that we can't even come close to filling enough work, uh, enough employment. Uh, what is the, the job openings? well over 10 and a half million, or about 10 and a half million Still, which is a ridiculous number.
1: It's absolutely absurd. I'm with. I hate Jolts. I don't. I. I wish we never had to look at Jolts, right? I know. But then on the other side, garbage
2: stat,
0: right? Yeah. Just (laughs) for the the audience, this is a a list of the number of job openings, uh, and it's received. It's something I know Jay Powell, uh, Fed Chair, pays a lot of attention to. Right. uh, But it is Bob is right. They shouldn't.
2: (laughs) Yeah. No, I. I I agree. You can understand though. You can understand the the reason why they have it. I mean, look. Jolts, you know, going back to the, you know what's this uh, beverage, um, the idea that we need to measure the demand for labor that isn't always captured in the actual number of people employed because there are other factors involved. So you know the idea behind job openings is a good one. It's another one of those where you shake your head after a while, as Bob was just doing, that maybe the way that's done is just not not particularly helpful. And I think that's my point here is that job openings, if you look at job openings, The economy looks like it's still red hot but then you look at something like hires which is also part of the jolt survey and it's gone off a cliff now it isn't gone to a low level but it's it's going down 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 which again the labor market data maybe doesn't tell you everything you need to know from just the labor market data one reason why is because it is lagging it's only telling you what has happened up till now to get a somewhat of a sense of where we are today and not really necessarily much of a sense of where we're going tomorrow, which is why I look at, again, markets and curves and interest rates because markets have much better information than you or I or anybody else does because that's what markets are supposed to be about. And when you look at markets that are actually grounded in fundamentals conditions, what you see is that they have, again, better information and they're portraying what they're seeing, what most people (laughs) are agreeing is a consensus and if the data follows where the markets say the mar- the economy was going to go, then you're reasonably certain that the markets are on the right track. And so, if we look at these this ambiguity across data series, the establishment survey is okay, household survey is bad. Jolt's job openings looks really good, but tires looks bad. The markets continuously say it's the bad stuff, not the good stuff.
0: Uh, yeah, just final question on the labor market. So I, th- I think Jeff to Bob the fact that uh, your know, wages are going up 6% a, a year, that indicates that labor demand demand for labor is higher than supply for labor. Would you disagree with that conclusion? I would say
2: I would qualify it. Demand for certain parts of labor is, is still exceptionally high. And I think that's part of the SRIRL, uh, short-run increasing returns to labor that is, uh, that is evident when you have sharp economic shocks like 2020. Essentially, companies hold on to When they have to just fire everybody because revenues are falling off a cliff, they tend to hold on to the higher wage positions because those are the more valuable employees. And so I think demand for the more valuable employees over the last couple of years has persisted. And so the wage data has skewed toward higher value jobs for that reason, which again, as I said before, leaves too many people out of the equation. That's why we don't have as many jobs or many jobs as we should have uh, over the two and almost three years since the 2020 peak because the economy hasn't actually recovered from its 2020 recession. It sort of looked like it did in sort of the rapid recovery from the low point, the, ultim- the ridiculously low point in 2020 into 2021. So I think that there is a tremendous amount as Janet Yellen said in 2014, hidden macroeconomic slack in the low participation rate. The participation rate should be much higher I mean, it should be way higher than it was in 2019, let alone where it is today. So that tells me that, there, yes, those who have a job and those who have good job skills, they're doing not just well, they're doing tremendously well, as Bob pointed out, for the first time in forever. So good for them. But in terms of the overall macroeconomic condition, there's just too many people being left behind, and then they're they're not even be left not just being left behind in the labor market. They're being pounded now by consumer prices for the
1: same artificial reasons.
0: Jeff, I, I, I want to ask I, you about the, I, the yield curve, but yeah, Bob, I'll give you the, the final word uh, on on the labor well, market.
1: My my final word is a- actually some questions. <laughs> um, uh, I, one of the one of the theories I've heard um, about the about the the jobs market and some of these like more negative I don't know what you call it like underlying pieces corners of the the releases has been that that we've basically been in this world, we're at this world where full-time employment, is basically anyone who is a full-time, a traditional full-time employee is employed basically that wants to be employed. And so now what's happening is a lot of the incremental hiring is more in the part-time side of the economy. And that has sort of two effects. That composition mix, that shifting composition mix has two effects in some of these underlying areas that look a little weaker. I mean, first of all, it looks like there's more part-time employment than there is full-time employment because full-time employment isn't moving and part-time is. Second, that that would typically depress average hourly earnings since it's, uh, you'd be adding incremental uh, lower income earners to the job market. Um, And third, that that would also depress hours because what would happen is you would be um, adding People who are more part time and, you know, might be working on net less, incrementally less than they would be otherwise, you know, than, than a full time person who would just stay full time. Any thoughts on those points and, and, and that perspective on some of this sort of weakness on the corners of the labor market? Yeah, well, why would we assume that's voluntary? <laughs> you know,
2: that's maybe just what the companies are willing to pay. They don't want to hire full time employees because it's way too expensive in terms of adding full time benefits, so I look at the same same data, same situation, and say, I don't think this is voluntary, I think this is the best mm-hmm. the labor market is, is putting is coming up with. And again, this is an extend, it's extension of not just 20 post 2020 economics, but also post 2008 economics, where the labor market recovery after uh, the 2008 recession was incredibly weak for the same reasons. So the The lack of participation, the lack of full-time employment, I don't think those are voluntary situations where people are saying, I would rather work part-time. Of course, there are individual cases where that's absolutely true, just as there is in demographic shifts and people retiring. But overall, I think that's the lack of labor market recovery. And so in some ways, the data that we have is the data that we have. And so we look at that and say- (laughs) whether it's the household survey, the establishment survey, or whatever the, whatever the number is, ADP even, where did all the jobs go if this labor market is so tight? Where did all the hours go if this labor market is so incredible? And I think that's really what's bugging the markets is that when you look underneath the surface, the, the acceleration from the low makes it look a lot better than it actually was. And that when we finally start to slow down to more stable equilibrium, it's not nearly as good as what the unemployment rate says because the unemployment rate looks at a smaller and smaller slice of the overall population. The official labor force continues to shrink, and that can't all be just demographics.
0: Uh, yeah, Bob, what about uh, personal income, which I guess adjusts for people who aren't working and aren't looking for work, those aren't in the, not in the labor force? Uh, yeah, just in terms of the total amount of money that is earned by you know, all Americans, what is, what does that indicate?
1: You know, in general, we're seeing, if you look at something like the, you know, employment cost index or something like that, what you're seeing is like for like wage increases that are in that five to 6%. That's similar to what you're seeing in the Atlanta Fed, like for like, you know, the Atlanta Fed wage trackers are good because it's like literally people like actual individual people and they're like for like wages. And so you sort of see that and then you can connect that with the overall, you know, the overall employment growth, which is somewhere between um, okay and soft, you know, not a disaster, you know, likely not a disaster. I mean, meaning not hugely negative, likely not booming kind of, okay. You put those two things together and you get, moderately okay income growth, you know, and, and, and somewhat elevated, you know, elevated relative to history, nominal income growth in aggregate at the economy-wide level. And that is a pretty good, you know, that's, that's probably enough in the context of falling CPI, falling prices, which is where we started this conversation, to keep real spending, real demand in aggregate in the economy From the household sector kind of okay for now now that might change right wages might come down savings might get a little you know will are over time being depleted but like if i look at the next three six months you know i think we can probably do okay spending can kind of be okay given the income growth that we're seeing the labor growth we're seeing and the compression in uh in goods prices you know in particular
0: Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying... Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods 345. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. All right, so Jeff, let's talk about a metric that's a forward-looking metric that I know you put a lot of weight on the yield curve. Why is it important? What is it doing now, and what conclusions are you drawing from it?
2: Well, before we get to that, I want to go back and just what you're just saying about income. There's a series that the Bureau of Economic Analysis puts out called real, real personal income, excluding transfer receipts, and it's one that the NBER uses as one of the way, one of the uh, statistics to determine a business cycle. And the reason it's important is because it's adjusted for prices and it only looks at incomes from private uh, sources. So we're not we're not including government transfer payments. And real personal income, excluding transfer receipts, has been incredibly weak for over a year. In fact, it's down on a year over year basis, down slightly. It shouldn't be down at all. It should be increasing at a steady rate. In fact, it normally does outside of recession. In recession, what you see is it rounds off and then starts to go down a little bit. Um, then in the worst recessions, it'll contract. So over the last year or so, real personal income, excluding transfer receipts, what that tells us is that aggregate income, as Bob said, nominal incomes are absolutely growing, but it's not enough to offset rising prices, nor this lack of participation. So again, we have an economy where those people who are doing well are doing fine, but there are too many people being left out. And that's why aggregate incomes are not keeping up with prices because there's too many in that other category, which by the way, is all a recession really is. Because even in the worst recessions, most people do really well, they do fine. They don't really experience anything. It's the people who don't do well, that category increases too much that leads to all sorts of feedback effects. And I think that's what getting into the yield curve and all the money curves are saying is that the probability that we get into those feedback effects, those negative feedback loops has gone way up over the last half of last year. So ever since June, uh, the yield curve, I mean Euro dollar futures curve inverted back in December of 2021. What that suggested is that people in the market, and this is a this is not a niche market, this is an enormous market where the most sophisticated players are hedging trillions and trillions of dollars of positions. And what they said in December 2021, given the circumstances and how the economy was playing out back then, more people started to hedge for rates going lower relative to wherever they would settle than were willing to take the other side of that trade. And as 2022 continued to develop and the economy continued to develop in the way the markets thought, more and more parts of these huge, significant markets have been hedging in ways that will pay off when rates go lower over the intermediate term. And what the markets don't know just yet is where the interest rates peak and when they start falling, but the level of confidence and certainty about rates falling in the near run is off the charts. We haven't seen anything even close to this since 2007. So the Fed says, we're gonna hike rates for a little while longer, but we're not even thinking about cutting rates this year, maybe even next year. And the market says, you're gonna hike rates for a little while longer, but then you're going to start cutting, whether you want to or not. This is a 2018, 2019 situation. This is a 2007, 2008 situation. This is a 2000, 2001 situation. We see this repeated all, especially in Euro dollar futures, where the market looks at the economic circumstances and said the balance of probabilities here, the economy is much weaker than policymakers believe. And that's where we get into the discussion that we had before about how do we interpret this ambiguity and the ambiguity in this, some of this data where markets are doing that for us.
0: Okay, so so great point, Jeff. I just want to quickly say that... Um, the chart of of personal income which is nominal uh so not including not adjusting for inflation and it includes transfer payment payments like from the government that chart is paints a picture of a red hot economy where uh, income is above trend and it's growing uh, and everything is fine. Jeff, the chart that you talked about could not tell a d- more different story. It uh, takes account the money from the government. And Once to, again, adjust- right? You're stuck for- <laughs> in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, either I- this or this. It's almost binary at this point, right? Yeah, yeah I'll put a chart of two, two of those <laughs> on, on, on screen so, and people should do, do their own work. That, that That's great. And then, yeah, the Euro dollar, uh uh futures um the treasury futures fed fund futures so for whatever you want to look at is looking it's not just the 10 uh, the 210 spread is is inverted it is a biblical level of rate cuts that the market is anticipating for example the peak terminal rate is now just shy of five percent let's call it five percent um going to be achieved in this the spring or maybe early summer of, of 2023 by december 2024 it's three percent so that's uh 200 basis points or eight rate cuts so that's what uh, yeah, with well, extraordinary say, though, number of rate cuts
2: be careful don't don't take these literally it's not yeah. saying three you know there's eight rate cuts or eight you know what it's saying is balance of probability mm-hmm. there is a tremendous probability that rates are going lower beginning at some point this year now the markets can be wrong because it, there was a time in the early part of last year the middle part of last year where it looked like the rate cuts were going to start this year or in 2022 so the timing is always up in the air this is always about probabilities but yet you're right. We rarely see markets this 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 absolutely certain that rate cuts. Interest rates are going to go lower from wherever they stop out or wherever they top out. Uh, we only, in the last time, Eurodollar futures, I mean, it's only a 30-year history there, really. But still, the only time you saw anywhere close to this level of inversion was late uh, middle part of 2007.
0: Bob, how ominous is this uh, extreme inversion to you? Well, I, I think
1: um, the important thing to think about is um, the important thing to, to wrestle with is the leads and the lags. Like it is uh, it is unambiguous that um, uh, yield curve inversions typically precede recessions. That is That is unambiguous. That is, you know, we have dozens of indications of that through history and across countries. <clears throat> the thing that is super ambiguous is the timing of that. And that matters a lot to thinking about when you're when you're running money. That matters a lot. And so, as an example, you know, pick your favorite indicator, maybe like a twos tens. That can go, you know, that could be anywhere from nine months lead to twenty eight months lead. Well, the difference between nine months lead and twenty eight months lead is the difference between you know being right on top of a recession and it be and it coming, but it not coming yet. And particularly when you look at inflationary periods, uh, like back in the sixties and seventies, you often will see yield curve inversions for, let, let's say, a two's tens, because I think that's probably you know because you can look at that, that back through time. Those are the sorts of things that can be deeper than what we've seen before, what we've seen right now, and they also can be longer uh, than um, they can be longer in terms of cycle, and so that you know that that's kind of my take on it is um, it is true in a um, in uh in sort of a bimodal sense like yes it precedes recession essentially 100% of the time but from trading markets the the ratio of putting on let's say using that to trade the stock market is not that good um and that is you know that's a really that's a really important and so you have to triangulate that yield curve inversion with other pieces of the macroeconomic stats to really understand what's likely to transpire.
0: Great, great point. And just to give an example, yeah, so I'll put a chart up of the 210 inversion, the 10-year treasury note uh, minus the, the two-year, and when it's negative, that's an inversion. And before pretty much every recession. I think actually every recession, I'm just hedging my bets. I think, uh, it's, I think it's every single one, right? Yeah, every I mean, single one, every single recession that happens. Four, but the timing year. is so, so, and just to, as an example, the the 210 spread inverted in January of 2006. But the U.S. economy wouldn't enter recession for 23 months uh, later. Likewise, you know, the yield curve inverted in early 2022. And if you said, oh, inflation's going to go down and uh, buy bonds because a recession is here, that wouldn't have worked out so well. So, uh, Jeff, what do you what do you think?
2: Well, I agree with Bob that, you know, the correlation between, say, a yield curve inversion and in stocks, I mean, Stocks don't correlate with reality as it is. So I mean, <laughs> as far as trading goes, yeah, absolutely. I love but, that yeah. line. Stocks don't correlate with reality. I love no, it. No, okay. they, they, John Maynard <laughs> Keynes is right about that. It's a beauty contest. Uh, he wasn't right about many other things, but he got that. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> but you, you're you know, it's, what changed in, as far as the bond market goes is the short end of the yield curve last year, which is all about the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve raising its short-term rates but you see the resistance to those short-term rate hikes in the inversion of the curve. And then that gets us what Bob was pointing out about the level of inversions. The more the Fed or whatever reason back in the seventies, it wasn't the Fed, but the more rates go up responding to whatever the conditions are. And the more the market is, is certain that they're going to have to come back down. That's the, that's the level of inversion. Now, as far as timing, it's a crap, it's, now, it's not necessarily a crapshoot, but it is, it is it is very difficult. It's more of a term of art or a, tr- uh, a an attempt at art than it is any kind of science. But you look at the changes in the dynamics of the yield curve or the euro dollar futures curve or some of the others around the world, and you can see that market concern has been growing consistently again over the last half of the year, which not coincidentally coincides with the, the decrease in consumer price pressures that started well before rate hikes had any chance to do what they're supposed to do, which tells us that maybe the yield curve is sniffing out the turn in the economy, which began back in June. That doesn't necessarily mean the recession began in June of 2022, but maybe that was the point of no return. And then you look at the economic data, as Bob does, you look at a broad cross-section of economic data and see if it matches the changes in the yield curve. The yield curve did a couple interesting things. November, in particular, we saw the yield curve, which was already massively inverted. It, took, it went biblical in November, and then it spread around the world. I point out the Germany bund curve for a lot of reasons, because Germany is not supposed to be inverted. German bunds is stable and boring, but yet the inversion started in September 22, it unprecedented because it was one basis point to the 30-year bund. Now it's completely upside down. The German curve looks like the treasury curve, which is something I never thought I would ever see. So you look at the extreme level of hedging that's going on in these massive global markets, and then you turn to the economic data, and you say the economic data is following along in the direction of the curves rather than moving in the opposite way. Even the even the stuff that looks more optimistic, like the establishment survey, it is it is slowly slowing down. And then you look at some of the weaker stuff. I mean, look at the data that came out just recently. The ISMs, incredibly low. The ISM non manufacturing in particular, which is about the services economy. And the ISMs non-manufacturing had been the, good, the lone positive outlier of all the PMIs. Suddenly it plunges in December, which is consistent with what we're seeing in, the, in, the, in these markets and these yield curve changes, which tell us that balance of probabilities, which are going stronger by the month, This is not going to end in a soft landing, it's gonna end in a recession. And that recession is looking worse by the month, it is getting closer by the month, even if we can't tell for sure, because of the imperfections that we all talked about in the data, exactly when that will happen. So we look at the markets, we look at the data, we look at corporate store, I mean, how many earnings reports have come out where companies are saying economic uncertainty? It's all over the place. Well, it's not uncertainty, what they're saying is, we're seeing softening in the economy And what we've matched that up with the labor market data, which suggests a lot of companies are actually taking proactive approaches, which gets us into the situation set of circumstances that markets have been pricing with increasing confidence, especially since last June.
0: I've got a series of questions. I'll just uh, list them. First is how high do you both think the Federal Reserve will hike? You know, if the interest rate markets have basically drawn a, a pencil with with pencil, uh, they hike to to five uh, percent in May, and then they go down all the way down to three percent in at the end of 2024. As you said, Jeff, not a prediction; it's based on probabilities. Where would you draw your line? You know, Jeff, Bob, would you, would your line be above that? Jeff, your line would be below that, uh, or, or maybe not. So, what are, what what will the Fed do? Uh, for, of course, no one knows. Question is, what should the Fed do? Is four and a half percent an appropriate level of interest? Is it too high? Is it too low? And number three, what is the actual effect of uh, interest rate hikes on the economy? Uh, Bob, you can choose any or all of those questions, and then we'll go to you. Dan, <laughs> <for> you.
1: <laughs> a little round robin here. Um, uh, will the will the Fed's ultimate uh, uh, hikes be higher? Let's say terminal rate be higher than what's currently priced into the market? Probably yes um and you know where will that be hard to know um which is not intended to be a cop out answer but is intended to emphasize like um we don't know the sensitivity of the economy to interest rate hikes and also the fed doesn't know the sensitivity of the economy to interest rate hikes in this cycle there's a lot of cross cutting forces debt levels are obviously much higher than they were like in previous cycles, like 15 years—I mean, the last real cycle we had was 15 years ago, right? Uh, COVID wasn't really a cycle; it was like a—you know—being hit by a freight train. Um, and so, you know, it's been 15 years. Lots of things have changed. Debt levels are higher. At the same time, you know, 15 years of unbridled monetary stimulation have helped people refinance uh, to very low rates and extend the term on their loans, both corporates and households and the government to some extent. And so how exactly that all flows through is uncertain. And so so my recommendation would be much more around, you know, you're continuously looking out that next three or six months and saying, does it look like enough or does it not look like enough? Does it look like enough or not look like enough? And that is a much like, that's gonna be a much better way to navigate or manage this you know, positions in in short-term interest rates than it is to pick a number and be like, well, it's definitely going to be six percent. Like like, like if you when you when I hear those Fed governors say that stuff, it's like that is just such garbage. Like they have no idea. Right. And it could be, just to be clear, it very, it very well could be already enough. And if it's already enough, we'll start to see the things that are already enough flowing through that are strong enough indications that, that that's the case. But my guess is Higher than five, uncertain about exactly how much higher
2: than five. Jeff? Just to, to take what Bob said, they have no idea. The FMC has no idea. Economists have no idea. They're just winging it. I know they, they present themselves as a bunch of monetary economic scientists who have all these sophisticated econometric models, but the econometric models are garbage. Uh, they never really help all that much. I want to read a quote from Robert Hall. Robert Hall, who was from Stanford University, was the chair of the MBRs recession cycle dating committee. And it said, this was December 1st of 2008, when the NBR finally declared that there was a recession in 2008. December of 2008, remember, was two and a half months after Lehman. The jobs reports were minus millions. And this is what Robert Hall had to say. He said, employment declined less than is normal in a recession until about September. Then so many negative numbers came through that it made it completely clear this was a recession. That is the standard approach that economists and policymakers take. They don't realize the economy has shifted into recession until they get clobbered over the head with several two by fours hit uh, in all of the data. So that's, you know, I think this is really good discussion that we're having here because that is the problem. Until the data becomes absolutely crystal clear, it's pretty ambiguous. So we could be in a recession right now. We wouldn't see it in the data for... However, many more months. So, in the one sense, you have a little bit of sympathy for policymakers because there's—we're all flying a little bit blind here because we don't have perfect information. They have less perfect information than we do. So. It, I guess my ultimate point is that the level of rate, rate hikes where it actually ends up, I don't think it really matters all that much, at least when you're considering what is actually going on in the real economy. Because what you're really asking, Jack, is when will policymakers finally figure out what's going on? That's what we're really trying to ask. And that's a really tough question because they have shown in all of these cycles that it takes a long time and as mr hall said they had to get hit by numerous multi-million dollar or multi-million job cuts in order to make a determination the last time in, two th- in 2007 2008 and 2009 so it may be that we go into recession and nobody makes an official declaration until 2024 that absolutely could happen but that ultimately is meaningless to us when we're trying to navigate the macroeconomic uncertainties that are all over the place. And in one sense maybe that's the most the strongest signal here is that we started out last year talking about a red hot economy that was going to stay red hot forever and we begin this year wondering if we're in recession. So even in just the broad terms we can see something big changed in 2022 and bringing this back to the discussion about the CPI The December CPI did nothing more than tell us that, which we already knew to begin with.
0: (laughs) Right, and uh, yeah, the economy never stays, nothing stays red hot forever. Um, Does, uh, how how, uh, efficient or uh, efficacious, I guess, important, are the interest rates set by the Federal Reserve on the economy? Like, do you think that the rate hikes this year have played a, a role, or maybe even a significant role, in the housing slowdown? Do you think that the you know the zero rates of 2021 and 2020 played played a role in, in the huge bond uh, bonanza and the fact that you know in, you know companies without revenue were, were trading at billions of dollars?
2: Well, you know, rate hikes and rate interest rates are never so simple. I know we're we're, we're led to believe that it is so. It's like flipping a switch. When the Fed hikes rates, that's restricting credit, that's restricting the economy. When they lower rates, that's stimulus. And it's that's, that's just not true. There are times when that is true and there are circumstances that are true and there are certain parts of the markets or the economy that's true. And Jackie, you pointed out housing, obviously rate hikes have depressed housing. But what about the rest of the economy? Well, you look back through time, the 1970s, the great inflation, the higher interest rates went, the more banks were willing, willing to lend and the more companies were willing to borrow because they saw nominal opportunities in the real economy continuing on forever, which is one reason why policymakers focus so much on expectations. What they get wrong is the banking part of it. But the point is that rates were going up in the 1970s and that did nothing to stop the economy or inflation. So it's never so simple as rate hikes up, economy down. There's always nuances and there's always individual circumstances to take in mi- or to keep in mind. So in my view, I look at the rate hikes last year, they were late. Again, we keep talking about June. The Fed was just starting its aggressive rate hikes in June. Even those who believe rate hikes are effective will tell you that they aren't effective without a lag and usually a substantial lag. So as far as they're concerned, we're looking at, you know, if rate hikes were a, a really severe constraint on the economy, that wouldn't start until a couple months ahead of us. What, it, what explains the economic weakness that I see over the last half of June 2020? It couldn't have been rate hikes. So to me, and I think to the market, which is why we're getting into these big inversions, it's not really about rate hikes. The rate hike question, again, is only when the Federal Reserve finally realizes the situation for what it is. So thanks. the rate hikes themselves aren't the issue here, sort of just a distraction.
0: Thanks. Uh, you guys do five more minutes or, Jeff, do you have to go? Five more minutes is fine. All right, All right great. Um, thanks, i Three two one uh the final question i want to do has to is at the in- intersection of consumer spending and uh bank credit so bank credit did not really expand that much and well 2020 was weird but in 2021 it, it, you know bank credit was uh you know pretty similar to 2019 2018 maybe even a little bit lower but in 2022 um bank credit exploded and i've actually got a, a chart from uh uh, Joseph Lang showing that. that that I'll show later but first I just want to show uh, Bob this tweet for, from you showing sp- how spending from 2022 versus 2021 this is from MasterCard the, the credit card company uh, was up in 7.6 percent it, for e-commerce was up 10.6 percent and that's relative to 2021 which was the biggest holiday spending season season ever um, so so yeah just I just love both of your concluding thoughts on uh, consumer spending and uh, uh, bank bank lending uh, Bob you first.
1: Well, I, I think uh, it, it goes back to this question of what type of cycle that we're having. Um, there's been uh, particularly uh, a lot of attention drawn to uh, elevated credit card spend, ele- elevated credit card balances and revolving balances. It actually, happens uh, as far as I can tell to include buy now, pay later as well. Uh, that that's the thing that's um, driving spending. It is not the big story from a quantitative attribution perspective when you look at the size of those of that spending growth financed by that credit it's not it's not that big in the grand scheme of things. Maybe uh, a few uh, a few uh, tenths of a percent of GDP have been supported by the sort of consumer credit, increases that we've been seeing in terms of overall gdp over the course of the last year i think it's important uh to recognize that a big part of what's driving the spending is a combination of two things one is elevated nominal incomes for which it's critical to understand the labor market understand wage growth and see how that's going to play out and then the other part that's that's helping support spending meaningfully is uh is disabled uh, by the households and so that's another critical component of it and that will not persist forever and so the key question is that balance between income and uh and income growth and the savings to end the, the and price increases and how the, how you solve for each one of those different pieces will help you understand whether or not real spending demand, real economic activity, labor market tightness, et cetera, will persist. Right now, it looks to me like we've got three to six months of runway in a way that will kind of look like Goldilocks, probably transitory Goldilocks, but it looks like we've got some runway. Uh, when I add up all those numbers and and you know pencil them all out, that's what it looks like to me
0: thanks and and yeah um, i'm just thinking tomorrow the banks report their their earnings from the last quarter bank of america had this uh, fantastic chart just showing how much people's th- money in their bank account was up relative to 2019 and that, right, that was right. and even by
1: even by the individual cohorts like the you know the lower income cohorts and they had a lot of great data from them and j p morgan about that and it showed basically you know obviously the well off are more well off than the less well off but Everybody is, everyone's bank account is higher than it was, still meaningfully higher than it was before. It'll be interesting to see how that bends that out.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, so Jeff, I, I want to ask you about the, the spending, but also um, the bank lending, whether it's uh, credit cards or commercial bank loans and leases, which is the, the chart we're showing now, which was above uh, in 2022, well above 2021 and 2019 and 2018. Um, you know, should we interpret that as, oh, banks are lending money, it's supporting inflation, it's creating inflation, or is it there's a shortfall of actual funds, so people have to borrow the money because they don't actually have the money?
2: Well, the chart you're showing here, commercial loans and lending, uh, CNI loans, that's a get out of Dodge type of chart. That's a, hey, this is bad. Because <laughs> you see CNI loans spike just before a recession. That's companies saying, I want to get as much liquidity in the house as I can before banks tighten lending standards, which we know they are. If you look at this Federal Reserve Senior Loan Officer Opinion Survey in the fourth quarter, which was October, I think the survey was done, uh, bank lending standards went poof. So banks are tightening lending standards. Companies know it. You've got rising interest rates to go along with it. So banks or companies are loading up on loans as they did in 2007 and 2008 or in 2000, anticipating rough times ahead. So Commercial industrial loans and loans and leases like that is, a, is that's, a, that's a cyclical signal there, a defensive signal there. And if you go back to, to Bob's tweet on the MasterCard spending, I think that just goes to show the bifurcation that we're talking about in the labor market. You know, restaurant spending up 15%, mm-hmm. those who are doing well are having the time of their lives. But then look at the other data. Electronics, jewelry, department stores, those are the lower income, lower tiers of the economy who are having enormous amounts of trouble because of consumer price pressures, also the fact they can't find jobs that they want for a variety of reasons. I think they are macro reasons. There may be structural reasons too, but I think even the spending data there shows that the economy is not well. That there's too many people being left out of it, and eventually, that's too much of a drag to overcome.
0: Mm. Uh, thanks, uh, Jeff. And yeah, just just to put to, to put a pin on that. In 2020 and 2021, uh there were government outlays um to citizens as well as companies raised a ton of money in, in the bond market, which is not captured in, in bank lending. Uh in 2022, the, the corporate bond market didn't freeze up, but it's down like thirty percent in terms of issuance. But the, the 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 banking lending is that's very high. And as you say, high bank lending is actually, is kind of a very late cycle indicator. So the money is still flowing. Um, by the it's way- That's that, banks are almost as bad as the Fed. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: the, 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 uh, that,
0: that, that chart is from uh, my uh, good friend and frequent uh, collaborator on this podcast, Joseph Wang. Um, and and he had a, a blog post from the summer that was called, The Money Still Flows. And I think that's just, that sticks, quote sticks with me. because the money still flows. The question is where will the money come from uh, going forward? But gentlemen, I think one of you uh, uh, will be right, but I'm really glad you guys both have a, a great analysis. It's great to hear you ex- exchange your views. Um, Jeff, people can find you on Twitter at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. They can find uh, your excellent podcast, which I recommend, um, Eurodollar University, and the website is Eurodollar.university. Uh, Bob, you on Twitter can be found at Bob E Unlimited. And uh, you've got a blog, blog.unlimitedfunds.com, and you're, uh, you have an ETF, uh, HFND, Gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, would love to do this again soon. And thank you everyone for watching.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jack. Nice to meet you, Bob. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was it was great uh, batting this around, Jeff. Really enjoyed it. Absolutely.
0: Thanks, guys.